0: I'm Ben Domenech. I'm
1: Ainsley Earhart.
0: I'm Trey Gowdy, and this is the Fox News Rundown.
1: Friday, June 2nd, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Electric cars won't kill AM radio stars if a group of bipartisan lawmakers can pass a law protecting the AM dial in your future EV.
0: I think that's one of the reasons why the car makers were eager to pull AM radio out of their cars, is, is that I think part of this is an effort to silence voices with which they disagree. We speak to Senator Ted Cruz.
2: Elisa Lisa Brady. A crowded field may be complicated for Republicans trailing the former president in the polls. You know, you almost feel like you don't want voters to be so overwhelmed
3: by choices um, that it ends up by default just allowing one person to walk in and sort of be the presumed candidate. But that may be exactly what's going to happen. We
4: speak with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. And I'm Dr. Nicole Sapphire. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown.
1: Ford, Tesla, BMW, Mazda were among the car makers saying AM radio was out.
5: With the partnership that Paul had.
1: Interference with some of the electric car parts made that fuzzy sound worse, and they argued too few people were listening to AM radio anyway. But a group of bipartisan lawmakers in both the House and Senate got together and agreed AM radio is just too important. New Jersey Democratic Congressman Josh Gottheimer is among those proposing the AM for Every Vehicle Act.
0: It literally goes through everything, goes through buildings, and AM the way it's built it's meant for an emergency. It's why we've invested to back it up all over the country for emergencies.
1: They propose directing the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to issue a rule requiring all car makers offer AM radio in their cars without a separate or additional payment fee or surcharge. For those cars already made without AM radio, automakers would have to disclose that to potential buyers, but the bill would also order the government accountability office to look into whether alternative communication systems could do the job AM radio does in keeping the public notified during emergency events.
0: We've had a big victory recently. A number of major car companies have announced that they are pulling AM radio from new cars. And that is an enormous problem. That is a really bad decision.
1: Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz is among those pushing the bipartisan AM radio bill.
0: If you look nationwide, there there are roughly 4,500 AM radio stations all across the country. Uh, About 82 million Americans listen to AM radio every month, and pulling AM radio from cars does enormous damage. And, And so I joined together with Ed Markey. Ed Markey is a liberal Democrat Senator from Massachusetts. Ed may be the most liberal Senator in the entire U.S. Senate. I'm the most conservative Senator in the U.S. Senate. It is rare that Ed Markey and I are together on a bill, but we joined together on a bill To require that car companies continue to provide am radio in the new cars they're selling and that's important for a lot of reasons it's important as a matter of public safety if you look during emergencies whether it's hurricanes or tornadoes or floods am radio is the most reliable means of communicating with people often when you have a disaster power lines go out power goes down fm radio goes down it takes higher power and am radio is the means of communication of the last resort that Americans in distress rely upon to get life-saving information. But beyond that, uh, AM radio in particular is an oasis of talk radio. We have Mm -hmm. seen conservative talk radio stalwarts rise up from Rush Limbaugh to Sean Hannity to Mark Levin, and, and, and millions of Americans listen to talk radio. Frankly, I think that's one of the reasons why the car makers were eager to pull AM radio out of their cars, is is that I think part of this is an effort to silence voices with which they disagree. And I got to say, we introduced our legislation, and within four days, Ford Motor Company, one of the biggest car companies in the world, reversed course and announced it was going to include AM radio in all of its vehicles, and so that was a big victory to begin with. But we're going to keep pressing till we pass this legislation because consumers ought to have choice, ought to have the ability to choose to listen to AM radio if, if that's what they want to do.
1: Senator, some of the car makers, as you know, said that the the electric drivetrain, right, was an issue with interfering with the signal. If hearing AM radio is kind of critical to this, and these car makers are saying, well. We might have to move some things around, future models may have to look different. Does this bipartisan group you're working with propose how EV makers do this or just that they do it in terms of the technicalities? It
0: it doesn't mandate the specific technical fix, but the argument the car makers made, this initially started with just electric vehicles. Uh, There was interference between AM radio and the electric wiring. Well, it turns out there's a fairly simple fix in terms of shielding that wiring that's not terribly expensive, that enables AM radio to work just fine with electric vehicles. When this was limited to a handful of electric vehicles, it was not that significant a problem. Now, number one, we're getting more and more electric vehicles on the road, so that's becoming a broader problem. But number two, car makers were not just limiting this to electric vehicles, they were pulling AM radios off of their internal combustion engine vehicles, their gasoline powered vehicles as well. And so it was becoming an industry move that within a few years, millions of consumers would have cars that couldn't get AM radio. And and that I believe was an enormous problem. And so what this bill does is it requires that car makers provide AM radios and, and let customers decide, let the consumers decide. You know, there are Texans all across the state They're farmers and ranchers who in rural communities rely on AM radio. Sometimes it's the only radio you can get. They rely on it for crop reports and weather reports. They rely on it when they're out, out in the tractor. That's what they're listening to. And there are also communities, smaller communities. You know, one of the great things about AM radio is it has a very low barrier to entry, so that if someone wants to go up and put up a radio show, it is relatively inexpensive. It is much less expensive than an FM show which takes yeah. much higher, uh, an FM station takes a lot more power, a lot, lot more equipment, it's a lot more expensive. What that means is with AM radio, you have many more voices, and, and in particular, you have voices uh, in individual communities. So you have stations that focus on issues in the African-American community. You have stations that focus on issues in the Hispanic community. You have stations that focus on issues impacting Asian-American communities. That diversity of views is good for the country.
1: After Speaker McCarthy announced the debt limit agreement, you were were pretty critical. Um, Given that we have a divided government, obviously, where do you think House Republicans could have or should have gotten more?
0: House Republicans and the House as a whole voted to pass the deal. That was not terribly surprising. You saw a whole bunch of Democrats support it and you saw some Republicans support it. I think at the end of the day, the White House got a lot more out of this deal than Republicans did. This deal gives $4 trillion in new debt. That's a massive amount of new debt. And it does so in exchange for very modest spending reductions, spending reductions that I think are too small to make a material difference, fixing the problem we have. Look, some basic numbers. 2017, five years ago. In 2017, the entire federal budget was about $4 trillion. Federal tax revenues were about $3.3 trillion. Now that means, doing quick math, Mm -hmm. that the deficit that year was about $700 billion. What happened from 2017 to today? Well, the federal budget exploded. COVID was the excuse. And then you had a Democrat Congress and Democrat president that went on a multi-trillion dollar spending spree. And so now, five years later, the federal budget has gone from $4 trillion to $6.6 trillion. That is a massive increase. Federal tax revenues, even though we passed the big tax cut in 2017, remember Democrats said tax revenue would plummet? Turns out they were wrong. What they told the American people was flat out false. Federal tax revenues went from $3.3 trillion to just under $5 trillion. So federal tax revenues went through the roof because the tax cuts produced economic growth. But the problem is spending is now much, much higher. If we had limited spending, we'd have a surplus right now. But the Democrats didn't want to limit spending, and what happened to the national debt? In 2017, the national debt was $20 trillion, now it is $32 trillion, and with this deal, it is going to be $36 trillion. That is nearly doubling the debt in just a few years. That is profoundly reckless. If you're pissed off at the inflation you're paying right now, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the gas pump, when you pay your bills at the end of the month, the reason is the Democrats are printing money and borrowing money they don't have. And this deal should have done much, much more to address the underlying problem. This is a big missed opportunity. And and unfortunately, as Joe Biden is crowing, This was Republicans agreeing to fund every one of his left wing priorities. I think that was a big, big mistake.
1: How big a mistake is is Speaker McCarthy? I mean, as you know, it only takes just one House member to, you know, propose a motion to vacate the chair. Is his speakership in jeopardy? Do you think it should be in jeopardy?
0: Well, look, that's a decision House members are going to have to make. I, I, I think it is unfortunate. The first bill that the House passed was a really good bill. It was a bill that unified House Republicans that added about one and a half trillion in debt, but it did so in exchange for meaningful spending reductions, spending reductions, about 4.8 trillion dollars. It was focused in a way that was pro-jobs, pro-growth, reducing job-killing regulations. And unfortunately, when they went to the negotiating room, Biden got a whole lot more debt, a whole lot less spending reductions, and he gutted the pro-jobs and pro-growth elements. And, And so all of the partisan priorities from the White House, they remain in this deal. And I wish House Republican leadership had held the line. I wish they had said the stakes are serious enough that we need a real and meaningful compromise. And look, to be clear, They were never going to pass the exact bill that had passed the House, of course it was going to be a compromise, but this ended up being a compromise where the White House got just about everything they want, which is why so many Democrats in the House voted for it, which is why just about every Democrat in the Senate's going to vote for it, because they recognize it's a big win if you want to spend us into oblivion and drive our debt to record highs, this is a great win for that. If you actually wanna stop us from bankrupting the country, this is a serious missed opportunity and a serious mistake.
1: I just want your thoughts on 2024 briefly because the field of Republican candidates is clearly expanding, but former President Trump dominates the polls among Republicans and I know we're still a ways off. Does it stay this way with the legal issues confronting the former president and polls showing independent voters may be less inclined to vote for Donald Trump this time around. Do you think he will remain the man to beat as we move through this cycle?
0: Oh, listen, there are lots of people who are jumping into the presidential race and, and there are incentives for all sorts of people to get in get their name in the news and maybe appear on a debate stage. And, and, and uh, you know, I can tell you if you're at one and 2% and, and that's where you remain, it, it's not gonna happen. And people are gonna quickly run out of money and they're gonna drop out of the race. I, as I look at the field, I think it is basically a two-man race between Trump and DeSantis. And the two of them have already started unloading on each other. I expect it to be a rough-and-tumble primary. They're going to pound the living daylights out of each other, and and the voters are going to decide. And and whoever wins the primary, I'm going to enthusiastically support. I think it is critical that we win in November of next year. And so that's gonna be my focus is fighting to change the path we're on because the current path under this White House has been disastrous. I have never seen a president and an administration do more damage in two and a half years than Joe Biden and the Democrats have done. And so I think it's critical that we change our path in November of next year.
1: Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you.
4: This is Dr. Nicole Sapphire with your Fox News commentary, coming up. The campaign
2: trail is buzzing already, especially on the Republican side of the presidential race, as the field continues to grow.
5: We will shut the border down. We will build a border wall.
2: We will end mass migration into this country. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in New Hampshire after a two-day swing through Iowa, where he and several others will also attend an event this weekend. DeSantis says the next Republican president needs two terms. Former President Donald Trump could only serve one term if elected again.
0: I've been watching DeSantis go out and say, uh, I've got eight years, it's going to be eight years. Let me tell you something, right there you should vote against him. It'll take me six months to have it totally the way it was. We'll have it fast.
2: The Republican frontrunner holding events in Iowa ahead of a Foxtown Hall event last night. Next week, he'll have even more company in the race.
3: I don't think we have to choose between the courage of our convictions
0: and being decent to one another.
2: Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, plans a campaign announcement Wednesday in Iowa. I think they're, you know, they're friendly. They tolerate each other, but really, they had such huge
3: differences Over January 6th and the end of the administration, the 2020 election, and there's really kind of no love lost between them. I think they've tried to sort of make their peace. Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. But it means that Pence walks into this immediately as, you know, an anti-Trumper. I mean, a lot of these other candidates in Iowa are able to say, hey, I love a lot of what President Trump did. I might tackle it differently, but he got a lot accomplished. And, you know, I've got a lot of praise for him. That's not going to be the
2: case for Pence when he hits the trail there in Iowa. Mm, It's interesting that his early poll numbers, at least before entering the race, haven't been nearly as good, though, as, as say, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and the North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum are also expected to launch next week. Um, And they're not expected to be the last ones, necessarily. Is this shaping up to be like 2016 and does that fracture the party enough that only trump ends up with enough support for the nomination
3: i mean that certainly feels like the conventional wisdom and it really does doesn't it feel like we're getting to 2016 where you're going to have multiple levels of debates and primary debates because you just can't get everybody on the stage at one time so you know, I always ask why. Why is this particular person getting in? Do they have a real shot? Do they have a burning mission, something they want to accomplish, or is this about a book deal or a cabinet position or running for number two? You just have to ask. The more and more people get in, and you know, there were those early on who who sort of demurred. Like I, I think of former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan who was a popular Republican in a very purple blue state um, there in Maryland and sort of this idea that, you know, if you don't really think you can make a run for it, you stay out so you don't fracture the party and allow maybe one person to step up, whether that's Governor DeSantis or someone else. I mean, he's certainly the closest in the polls, though not close to the president at all to be the real challenge to him. So, you know, you almost feel like you don't want voters to be so overwhelmed by choices that it ends up by default just allowing one person to walk in and
2: sort of be the presumed candidate. But that may be exactly what's going to happen. It's interesting, too, how some candidates so far are emphasizing sort of the high ground, kind of a more positive tone. Um, Senator Tim Scott springs to mind in that way. Is that something that is just... Destined to change later, like the gloves just haven't come off yet, and invariably they will. Well, it is one way to
3: have a unique space to yourself if you go in that way. And it's interesting that, you know, Chris Christie's team or or people behind the scenes are kind of saying he wants to come in and be joyous, he wants to be a happy warrior. And that seems to fit in most people's minds more of a Tim Scott. Kind of version of how you do this. So it'll be interesting to see how Christie rolls that out. But, you know, it almost is like you're in one camp or the other, the brawlers who are just going to be the DeSantis v. Trump going after each other, or you're going to try to come in and say, I offer you an alternative to that. But I think anybody who's going to end up in the last, you know, three or four or whatever the handful is with President Trump, assuming he's still in the race it is going to have to be a brawl. There will have to be some
2: tough stuff that goes down on the debate stage and on the campaign trail. Iowa's already getting a lot of attention from the candidates. I know you have an exclusive on Fox News Sunday with Governor Kim Reynolds. How important is Iowa? Well, that's the question,
3: because how much does it reflect what the rest of the country is worried about last check, the economy was far and away their number one issue, just like it is for the rest of the country. So there are going to be places and ways that it does reflect the broader electorate, but there are ways that it doesn't. And that's why the Democrats have changed their nominating schedule. At least they're fighting to try to get these changes done um, so that Iowa isn't the arbiter for how their race starts out. But yeah, I think that's a good question for the governor. Is Iowa still relevant to the rest of how this plays out? There's not a good track record for winning Iowa and winning the White House. It doesn't, you know, often go hand in hand, but it can. Um, So what are people in Iowa, what do they really care about? Does that reflect more broadly on what the rest of the country is worried about? She's getting to see all of these candidates and spend time with them one-on-one. She's, you know, she's not playing favorites, but she is making sure that they get around to meet voters and make sure that they get the the heart and the vibe of what's going on in Iowa. So yeah, because so many of them will be there this week and this weekend, uh, we'll have a fresh look from her.
2: That'll be very interesting. One Wall Street Journal editorial says President Biden has a Kennedy problem. This based in part on opinion polling of Robert Kennedy Jr. compared to the president. How much of a problem could that be? I'm still surprised a little bit when I see, you
3: know, in some of our polls, it's been at 19% for um, RFK Jr. You've got Marianne Williamson in drawing, you know, in some polls, you know, almost double digits, like the 10% range. You got people who are undecided that are in, um, you know, some polls also in double digits. So it's not a photo of confidence for this president. And that's not just, you know, more broadly, it's it's high, of course, among Republicans, but also independents and Democrats. Um, to a lesser extent, say that they feel like there should be other options. You see various voices on the left and left of center saying we should have debates, which would be just so highly unusual for a sitting incumbent president who's decided to run for his party's nomination. I don't think the DNC is going to entertain that, but there's definitely some sub-segment of the
2: the Democratic primary voters who want other options. Hmm. Well, two things to follow up on that. First of all, could not having debates hurt the president with some voters. And also, could these poll numbers for these other Democrats encourage more Democrats to get into the race?
3: I think that at the end of the day, if he doesn't do debates and he ends up as the nominee, I don't think Democrats are going to stay home and say like, oh, I'm running over to vote for the GOP nominee. Do other Democrats get in? I think that's a high possibility. I think they see the weaknesses that the president has And you know names keep coming up like a Gavin Newsom and now you've got this real push for uh, Jamie Dimon to get involved so I think that it's not a done deal I I do think that there are other Democrats who are at least having the thoughts and conversations about
2: whether they might jump in House Speaker Kevin McCarthy taking significant heat from some conservatives over the debt ceiling deal Um, they're saying it's a hollow deal his supporters though say he is delivering historic wins for Republicans Mm -hmm. can both be true.
3: Yeah, think about the
2: fact it took 15
3: ballots for him to become Speaker, so there weren't a lot of people betting on him to get a couple of huge things done, which he has. He got a bill through the House. Yes, all GOP votes, but he held enough of his caucus together to get that bill through, which then forced the White House to negotiate over the debt ceiling, which they said they absolutely would not. It would be a clean debt ceiling or nothing. So he did win some inroads and some concessions from the White House. Now, The conservatives who, you know, backed that big House bill that they passed wanted what they got to end up looking a lot more like that, which it clearly did not. You know, you hear a little bubbling up of, we're going to, you know, do this call to vacate the chair and take out the speaker. There just is not an appetite more broadly within the Republican Party to do that. They say it's going to fracture and hurt the caucus to even entertain that. But what could be a real issue is when they get around to doing bigger bills and funding bills and in September, those debates that they're going to have, you already hear some of these conservatives saying, you know, I went out on a limb for him with this debt ceiling stuff. I didn't get what I thought I was going to get. And I'm going to be a lot tougher in those negotiations. So I asked him about that Sunday and he really kind of, um, you know, sort of brushed it off like, oh, no, we'll be fine. We'll be good when we get together on those things. But I'm increasingly hearing from conservative members who say he's done some damage within the caucus. But did he still get his deal across the
2: finish line? He did. The Supreme Court still has a lot of big rulings Mm -hmm. to announce before it wraps up the term soon. It did make one decision in a fight over union strikes, ruling that a company can pursue a damage claim, suing unions for money lost in a strike. That sounds like it could be pretty costly for unions.
3: Yeah, and that's the thing is that the Supreme Court's been pretty tough on unions in the last several years since I've been covering them. And this one, you know, a lot of people would argue is common sense, and it makes sense. Um, This was a concrete company that had people, drivers of their concrete trucks, walk off. And a lot of products got spoiled and damaged because of how they left things and how they left the materials and the trucks and that kind of thing. So they were trying to sue in state court saying, you've caused damage because of the strike activity, like actual property damage, and we should be able to sue you. And so what the Supreme Court ruled eight to one was, yes, you can get sued in state court if strike activity actually damages property of an employer. So they don't get the win here on the merits. What they do get is the ability to now go sue in state court, and a state court will have to decide how that comes out. Um, But yeah, I mean, not a good day for the Teamsters and the um, people who were supporting them in this case. Uh, But they only um, had one justice who saw things their way, and that was uh, Justice Ketanji
2: Brown-Jackson. There's a rather unflattering piece on the Supreme Court um, in The Guardian predicting a volcanic June <laughs> in terms of decisions, um, describing the court's conservative supermajority as radical. They've certainly had a you know, public opinion hit recently over ethics mm-hmm. questions, if nothing else. Does any of this get to the justices? Does it bother them? I think for most of them, it doesn't. I don't think that most of them read their clippings and worry
3: about, that. there are a couple I think who do, but I think for the most part, they know it's a lifetime appointment. They've got to buckle down and follow their legal principles to the left or the right center, whatever they are, whatever their legal philosophy is. I do think that they feel a bit attacked in that when people don't like the decisions they make, the left has been talking a great deal lately about adding seats about limiting their terms, all of these kinds of things that you know, you say, well, okay, you weren't talking about that five or 10 years ago when the makeup of the court was different. And so are you attacking them on the basis that you don't like the decisions they're coming to clearly? Or is it really about the substance or makeup of the court that it wouldn't matter to you whether it was a 6-3 majority one way or the other? I thought that Guardian piece was very interesting because it used very, very weighted language in the way that it talks about all these different, you know, cases that are still pending. And there are some really high button cases affirmative action in higher education, um, religious liberty and speech case issues. Um, The list goes on and on. I mean, student loan debt forgiveness. There are some biggies there. And so we're in that final stretch and there will be a lot of attention and a lot of heat on this court. I think the justices just buckle down,
2: try to get those final few opinions out the door and head for summer. Can't wait to have you sort all of those out for us when the time comes. Mm -hmm. Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream, thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you.
5: And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers.
6: Participating in a race or an extreme sport is many times followed with snacks at the finish line. Bananas, sports drinks, the occasional cookie, you know, stuff like that. But not the annual cheese rolling race near London. The first racer to finish gets, you guessed it, a wheel of cheese. The race dates back centuries and is so rough and tumble it often results in injuries. Matter of fact, this year's women's winner, Canadian Delaney Irving, was knocked unconscious for a bit. Hundreds of participants fling themselves down a steep hill chasing seven pounds of hard cheese, which can reach speeds of up to 70 or 80 miles an hour. The Washington Post reports that it's so intense, rugby players are positioned at the bottom of the hill to catch people as they come full speed across the finish line. Irving was caught on camera hefting the cheese above her head in triumph. The cheese rolling event is thought to be one of the oldest customs in Britain. There was even a Netflix documentary about it in 2020. It's not for the faint of heart, though. Past races have included injuries like bruised kidneys, severe concussion, sprained ankles, dislocated joints, Joints and, of course, broken bones. Matt Crawla from Manchester in northwestern England won the first of several men's races. Asked how he had prepared, he told reporters, I don't think you can train for it, can you? It's just being an idiot. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News.
5: Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Dr. Nicole Sapphire. What's on your mind? Artificial
4: intelligence is indeed here and has also made its way into the doctor's office and has the potential to revolutionize the healthcare system in a number of ways. Machine learning can analyze algorithms and large data sets, identify patterns, and make predictions, assisting doctors in making more accurate diagnoses and treatments. In the last 10 years, medical capabilities have advanced. Personalized medicine, tailoring medical treatments and interventions to individual patients based on their unique genetic makeup, lifestyle factors, and environmental influences is the standard of care now. AI can help by considering individual patient characteristics such as genetic profiles, medical history, and even lifestyle factors. By analyzing a wide range of data, AI systems can generate personalized recommendations to include not only medications, but additional screening testing and lifestyle modifications to promote overall wellness. AI is also able to help with predictive analysis. In medicine, we try to prevent disease before it happens or diagnose it at its earliest stage when it's easier to treat. AI is able to assist in risk stratification with utilizing multiple risk models and compiling them into a single, actionable model that may be able to provide a more accurate prediction of future disease. As a radiologist, the emergence of AI in healthcare is not new to me. The AI algorithms are able to assist in improving image quality and with detecting anomalies on various imaging modalities, like CT scans, x-rays, mammograms, ultrasound, and MRI. The hope is that AI systems will improve accuracy, decrease false positive interpretations, and improve overall efficiency. However, the need to validate the AI algorithms with rigorous testing is crucial. But it's not only the patients that may potentially benefit from AI in healthcare. Physicians are burnt out. Over 53% of doctors reporting some level of burnout in 2023. And one of the leading causes of burnout is the administrative burdens doctors are tasked with. If AI were able to automate such tasks like data entry, billing, scheduling, ordering, and even email response, this would allow the physician more time with the patient and their families and less time at the computer. If the physician is unhealthy, they cannot provide best medical care. It will take time before doctors fully trust machine learning with their patients' lives, so the widespread adaptation of AI has been slow, and rightfully so. Artificial intelligence has a place in healthcare and can improve many of the organizational deficiencies to ensure patients are still receiving best practices with human considerations. Because people are not robots. They're human. AI should be viewed as a tool to assist a physician by removing tedious administrative tasks, enhancing diagnostic capability, and improving patient outcomes. Ethical considerations, data privacy, and the crucial need for human oversight remain essential in the integration of AI in healthcare. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, Fox News.
5: Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.